A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You guys look a little bit different today. I can't tell what it is. So we're in three dimensions. Like three dimensional. Oh, that is what it is. Yeah, it's like very realistic. It's coming right at me. It's exciting. Yeah, it's uh, it's a new Zoom product uh, called Three Dimensional You, uh, <laughs> and you you have to toggle it in your settings, but it really feels like you're in the in the room with somebody. I'm feeling very self-conscious. I don't have that Zoom make yourself look better feature anymore. The takeaway, <laughs> the shine, and the blemishes, where everything's just a little blurry and in soft focus, like a '90s R&B video. That's kind of what I rely on. And listeners, we're able to do this because Alan is not here. Sorry, Alan. Single tear. He is frozen in the tundras of Minnesota somewhere, slowly defrosting. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security in the Multiverse of Alan Liss. Because today I am here, one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. We're here with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. But we are Alan Liss today. No Alan Rosenstein for you this week. Instead, we have brought in Alan's future self, as he himself likes to say every time you mention him, <laughs> Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wiss. What Wins. does that mean? <laughs> also, do I get to be called a co-host emeritus? I think so. I think that's only fair. Co-host Emeritus. The yes. ghost of co-host past and future. I think, I think. The ghost co-host I, with the most, I think Benjamin the, Wittes. I think the four of us should be uh, co-host Emeritus or, or, or co-host ghost. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. I do not know what it means that he says your future you. I can't remember if I made this joke before or not, but I think it does mean that if you find gold bars duct taped to your back, you need to run. <laughs> it's a looper reference for anybody who didn't see An that film. An excellent film. Excellent film. Agreed. Really underrated sci-fi movie. Uh, so happy to have you here with us today, Ben. It is great to be here, and it is fabulous to be in both of your physical presences, especially because this is the second time in two days I have been in the same room with both of you, which is almost like the before times when you know we saw each other every day. Because the pandemic is over, no matter what science or the numbers tell us. <laughs> yeah, flash right. forward to two days from now when Scott and I both go down with COVID. Yeah, well, exactly I will right. not because I have achieved Ubermensch status, having been triple vaxxed <laughs> and had COVID. Uh, I don't even need the fourth shot for another few months because I am, uh, you know, have re- achieved a kind of Nietzschean uh, level of, of immunity. Ben did walk in chain smoking, juggling knives, so he's, he's a little <laughs> self, more self confident than might be might be wisely recommended. But we are excited to have you here, regardless. For what we are calling the live action rational security edition. We are Larsing today. We're Larsers here, uh, live action role rational security <laughs> uh, with the three of us. I think that's just living life. Is it? You're not is role playing. We're like? just existing. Wait a minute. I'm not sure. I remember. Can't we say lar- LARPing? Live action. No, but we're not. We're not role playing. No, we're live action role podcasting. Live action real podcasting. We're LARPing. Live action real podcasting. That's exactly right. Um, I'm happy to have you here with with as my fellow LARPers uh, as we have through some of the week's big national security news stories, including the following. Topic one: Sharing is caring. Earlier this week, an unnamed senior U.S. official indicated that the United States is providing targeting information to Ukrainian forces, only to have other officials walk back that assertion almost immediately. What is actually happening, and why is the Biden administration so paranoid about discussing it openly? Topic two, the chief's thief. 
Recent revelations have shown that former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows played a more central role in leading efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 elections in the lead-up to the January 6th insurrection than originally understood. But the Justice Department still has taken no steps towards prosecuting him for contempt of Congress, for refusing to fully comply with the January 6th Committee's investigation, and he continues to challenge those efforts in the courts. What should we make of Meadows' predicament, and what should be done about him? And topic three, trolling alone. Incidents of harassment and hostility are an increasingly commonplace feature of our political discourse, particularly for public officials working on hot-button issues. What should we make of this breakdown in civility? What causes it, and where may it lead? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So listeners may have seen there's been some, I was going to say explosive reporting, perhaps explosive in more senses than one, (laughs) um, about U.S. intelligence giving information to the Ukrainians that allowed Ukraine to apparently successfully target Russian generals and reportedly also uh, giving some information to Ukraine that helped Uh, Ukrainian forces sink the Moskva, the major Russian warship that was sunk in the Black Sea. Um, There's been some confusion over the specific contours of this. I think the the U.S. then later said that uh, it wasn't involved in any specific targeting regarding the Moskva. But this raises a number of different questions, among them the possibility of escalation with Russia if, you know, Russia understands the United States to be sort of increasingly using Ukraine as a proxy war, setting aside whether that's actually the case. If, if Russia sees the U.S. is handing information to Ukraine that allows its generals to be killed, that that could be bad. On the other hand, I think there's, there's also something really interesting here in terms of how this looks next to the early disclosures that we got from U.S. and U.K. intelligence in the beginning days of the war in Ukraine, where we, we were constantly seeing really unprecedented levels of transparency coming from the intelligence community about what Russia was planning, about Uh, what kind of support the West was giving Ukraine. In those instances, it was very clearly a strategy that was approved at the top and that the Biden administration um, and to some extent the UK as well were going forward with. Here, in this case, when when these uh, stories came out, I sort of took a step back and thought, did they really approve that? And it appears that no, they did not. Because NBC reported that uh, Joe Biden spoke with top US intelligence and defense officials to tell them that uh, such disclosures, quote, distract from our objective. Uh, so <laughs> I think the question here is, who is doing this? How how do we understand this in relation to the sort of earlier transparency initiative? Like, is this a, a situation where once you kind of turn that spigot on, it's actually a bit hard to turn it off? And how should we understand this in terms of, you know, the U.S. role in Ukraine? Is this something that the U.S. should be doing? How do we think about the the risks of potential escalation? Ben, let me throw it over to you. All right. So there are a number of things here. Uh, Let's start with what I think is the easy question, which is how should we understand this in relation to U.S. intelligence, prior intelligence community openness? We should understand it very simply in relation to prior openness in the following fashion. The U.S. was never open about its own activities. We were open and transparent about Russian activities and intentions, and which is to say we were doing what the intelligence community always does, which is sharing intelligence, only doing it with a much wider aperture on the share. That is, we were giving a huge amount of intelligence directly to the Ukrainians. We were also talking about it publicly. That is not about U.S. intelligence activity. That's sharing analytic conclusions. And I think we can attribute that 
to, as you say, extremely high-level political decisions at the DNI level, at the president level, at the NSC level, to, uh, and no doubt at the CIA level, to, that there, this was a strategic judgment. This is something completely different. This is leaks or, or authorized disclosures, authorized by somebody, but maybe not somebody else, that purport to detail U.S intelligence activity. That's a very different matter uh, and uh, clearly within the administration a much more controversial matter. That's, I think, the answer to the first question. The hard question is the answer to the, is the, is the second question, which is what's going on here. And I'm going to throw out a hypothesis to uh, our resident international law expert, Scott, and uh, see if you buy it. So, the escalation concern here is a concern about uh, veering into a land of co-belligerency. And for, for those for whom that vocabulary is not obvious, uh, let me spell that out. The United States is not a party to this conflict. We are overtly supporting one party to this conflict. It doesn't make you a party to the conflict to sell weapons to one side or to give weapons or major financial support to one side or even to refuse to trade with or engage in economic sanctions against the other side. There is some point in which the intimacy of your assistance to one side makes you what international law calls a co-belligerent, which is essentially fighting on the same side. And whispering in the ear of uh, Ukrainian operators General Gerasimov is at this location. You may want to target him. May, although it's a really interesting question whether it would, it may reasonably be seen as crossing a line of co-belligerence. On the other hand, here is what is definitely not crossing a line of co-belligerence. We believe the Moskva is in the following location and is planning to launch attacks on Odessa. Not telling you what to do about it. Uh, by the way, uh, we also gave you a weapon system a month ago and trained your people in how to use it. That's not co-belligerence. Selling a weapon system, training the people, and giving them a warning that a major warship is coming to attack a city. And then the Ukrainians on their own decide, boy, put two and two together, that weapon system, these coordinates... And all of a sudden, you have something that a reasonable U.S. intelligence operator who's not legally sophisticated might tell the New York Times, hey, we gave them tactical targeting intelligence. I'm sure, I hope, we are giving you the Ukrainians tactical intelligence on command and control centers uh, and that they might very reasonably use for targeting purposes. But if we're not giving them with the explicit understanding that this is targeting intelligence, it's perfectly consistent with what the administration has said publicly, which is we have a close intelligence relationship with the Ukrainian to help them repel in a defensive fashion a military aggression against their country. Functionally, I don't think it's very different from providing tactical targeting intelligence, but I think it's legally very different. And that's why you have this dispute in terms of what we have and haven't done. It's not actually a very meaningful dispute from a, a substantive intelligence sharing point of view, 
But boy, is it a meaningful dispute if you are a lawyer in Scott's former office uh, at the State Department Legal Advisor's Office. There's my long-winded hypothesis. Scott, what do you think? Ben, you stole all my talking points. But yes, that's, you, <laughs> you did a very good job and, bringing and, it together. And, and can, can we just say we have never discussed this we issue? We have never discussed this. No, this we have not discussed not this previously. Even on Slack, it did not come up. If Ben read Slack. I don't read Slack <laughs> very <laughs> often. Um, no, I think you, you basically have it uh, articulated really well there. Um, when you share targeting information, is fundamentally different than other intelligence sharing. Uh, or at least it can be perceived that way if other factors align, because at a certain point, if you are directing foreign forces, providing a a essential degree of support that not just like makes an attack possible, but actually knowingly uh, facilitates it and directs it and is participating in those sorts of decisions, you get much, much closer to the line where people say you are a combatant, you're engaging in this attack. More fundamentally problematic even is is that you might get closer to the line where they can say, oh, this is an armed attack against Russian forces by this third party, meaning that not only are you stepping past the line of whatever neutrality law, which is in a, in a, in a weird state now, uh, you know, neutrality law prior to the 1920s or in the 1920s would have prohibited a lot of intelligence sharing. That's pretty commonplace today. There's this idea that since the Calabrian Pact and since the UN Charter has prohibited warfare, made warfare unlawful, except in very finite cases like self-defense or where authorized by the UN Charter, that states can provide a lot of support to the victim of a war of aggression, which this seems to fall pretty comfortably into for most people. But there's a certain point that you know, not only might you step past the role of neutrality, which doesn't automatically mean that you can be attacked by a third party, but if you're actually engaged in something that could be perceived as an armed attack, then all of a sudden Russia has a better legal argument to go hit you, right? Now, why, I mean, the part of this I think is interesting to think about is like, why does this matter to us if we think Russia is already waging an unlawful war, right? We seem to be operating on this assumption that Russia is still incorporating international law into how it evaluates and forms its red lines. It's probably not the only thing dictating that, right? Like NATO and the military presence of NATO on the other side of the border is a big factor about why it is not going to strike U.S. forces in Poland or elsewhere, uh, or very unlikely to, um, as much as any international law limit. But we still have this idea that when we cross these international lines, legal lines, we make it easier for Russia to take that step. And it's interesting when we think about it in the context of Russia, you know, qualified neutrality, this idea that in a war of aggression, you can provide lots of support that otherwise might you wouldn't normally be uh, acceptable to provide to if you were trying to remain neutral, you know, it depends on accepting that it's a war of aggression. And Russia, of course, doesn't accept that assertion. Russia has put forward a questionable, but nonetheless a actual argument as to why what it's doing is consistent with international law. It says that these two republics, you know, Dehetsk and Luhansk are independent countries now. Uh, we think that they meet those requirements and that they are suffering themselves from attacks from Ukraine, and this is all in their self-defense. Very questionable, factually very hard to justify, but it allows Russia to say these lines still matter. Because even from our perspective, uh, even if you accept our version of the facts, what you would be doing by providing really concrete targeting information if you were essentially directing Ukrainian forces could cross a line that even in the uh, you know most favorable universe of legal facts could open an avenue to legitimate lines of armed conflict. And that's what makes the Biden administration nervous. This is one factor of many. That's the thing we have to bear in mind. These are mostly policy lines about how we weigh these things. The best example, I think, was the MIG kerfuffle a few months ago about transferring jets from, I think it was Poland, ultimately, to the Ukrainians. The United States were going to compensate them. 
And this all became a big conflict because nobody really wanted to take responsibility for transferring those jets. There was no international law problem with that. That was a policy call to say, we think jets, because of the nature of jets and how we have to transport them, are just too provocative, even though legally they're not different than any of the other sport really providing javelins or switchblades or anything else. So this feeds into that. But it does an interesting case study that hopefully somebody dig into, maybe I'll dig into it, who knows, uh, in the near future, about the role international play, law still plays in these sorts of decisions because it clearly is a major factor that the Biden administration thinks, and it seems like they're kind of right, plays into Russia's calculation about what it's willing to accept and what it isn't to trigger some sort of stronger response or escalatory response. So I guess my question then is, to what extent do we think this tactic by the United States is risky and the disclosures are risky. I mean, because if we're thinking about policy lines in addition to legal lines, like the reporting that the U.S. had some role in allowing the Ukrainians to sink the Moskva strikes me as potentially concerning insofar as the Moskva was really like the, I don't know if it was literally the flagship, but it was a big ship. It was very important. It was a big deal that it sank. It was pretty astonishing that it sank. Um, It was a real black eye for Russia. So is this something where, you know, the U.S. takes a step and a lot of experts say, oh, man, like that, this could be potentially bad. And then nothing happens because Russia decided to play it safe. Is this something that we think is definitely pointing in a bad direction, either the strategy or the facts that it's being reported on? Like how concerned, essentially, should we be about this? I want to draw a weird analogy to this. And that is uh, the Russian public posture about interference in the 2016 election. (laughs) Um, And so this is a situation where everybody knew they were doing it. They boasted about it, you know, in in all kinds of media in subtle and not so subtle ways. And then they would earnestly deny it or not so earnestly deny it and indignantly deny it and say there was no evidence for it. And when uh, Robert Mueller would come forward with a mountain of evidence, they would just lie about it. Uh, This is exactly the same thing. This is a mirror image of, of this. It made it because it was not formally acknowledged, even though they were boasting about it. Uh, it was actually made it hard to do anything about it. We did some stuff about it, but the international, both for policy and legal reasons, the ability to respond internationally to stuff that is not formally acknowledged, even when it's like, boy, somebody was kill, you know, killed that guy with a drone strike in Pakistan uh, or with a, a standoff. You know, and we all know it's the United States and it's a a Reaper drone, but Barack Obama will not confirm that. It it could have been anyone. It could have been anyone, right? The fact of non-acknowledgement matters. And you can do a certain amount of boasting in media leaks. We got Anwar al-Awlaki. It was us. You know, ha, ha, ha. Um, but formally, it didn't. We we don't acknowledge that we did it, or we didn't for a while acknowledge that we did it. Uh, this is very similar to that, and I think uh, it's very similar to the trolling that the Russians did to us. On you know, some people in the intelligence community want the Russians to know that their warships are not safe because of us, their generals are not safe because of us, 
and we don't want the policy and international law implications of acknowledging the closeness of our relationship with the Ukrainians. And so this is a way that we do it. Also, similar related point, different components of the intelligence and military have different interests in this regard. Some are more interested in the trolling, uh, and the trolling is valuable and important, and some are more interested in the OPSEC, uh, both for not sharing intelligence sources and methods reasons and for not poking the bear reasons. Uh, those are different components, and now the president has at least publicly come down on the side of shut the fuck up. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right again. And, and what we have to think about here is this is a great example about the role that covert action plays, or a major role that covert action and clandestine activities play. Um, you, you can't get away with doing things clandestinely or covertly that would be permissible under national law. They don't become less impermissible because you're doing it in a non-publicly disclosed way. However, it gives you plausible deniability. It lets you to throw a little bit of shade, a little bit of tones of gray around where exactly the line is, and that increased the cost for the other party. In some cases, maybe you want to acknowledge it. You want to say, hey, other party, this is exactly what we're doing to you. If you really care this much, it's time for you to have some repercussions. Otherwise, you know, you need to shut up about your complaints about a particular situation. A lot of times we don't want that. We don't want to provoke a conflict. We're doing something to advance a more narrow strategic objective. And the gray area gives enough place for other states to save face uh, or enough confusion about the facts and allows enough ambiguity that allies might be able to remain neutral in a scenario that they might otherwise have an issue with. Or a case like here, if the United States is doing something they may think is lawful but is provocative, particularly from the Russian worldview or the Russian public stance about the law around these things. It gives them space to say, well, it's not clear 100% where this point is, Russia, how hard do you want to actually push that view um, and then act on it? And the fact that Biden administration came in and said, hey, don't do this anymore, don't reveal this, I think it's a sign that they understand the value of covert activity. And I believe we're probably still doing things very similar to like this covertly. I think it's probably designed in a way to avoid the clearest red lines that cross international legal line but uh, gives the Ukrainians a lot of information that plays a very central role in doing these things. I don't have a doubt about that. I don't think anyone's really surprised by that, including the Russians. Um, we may be a lot better at it than the Russians expected. The one thing I will say here is like, why is this being revealed? I think it's a real sign of the domestic dynamics around Ukraine that are problematic. I don't think this really does a lot for Ukrainian audiences more than other sorts of support or global audiences. It's bad for European audiences, frankly, because we tried really hard to make the Europeans look like they're at the front of this, and this apply, implies that they're not, that we're really at the front of it. This is somebody, I think, feeling a lot of pressure on Capitol Hill um, from particularly Republicans who in the last few weeks have really been hitting uh, the war drums, you know, as a bad metaphor in this case, um, but really trying to emphasize the point, we take this more seriously. We want to be harder than hard uh, against the Putin regime, whether it's seizing Russian assets, whether it's providing a support, although not necessarily financial support, at the level that the Biden administration is asking for. Lots of these other fronts rhetorically. People are feeling that pressure, and the Biden administration is trying to build the case as to it's responding very strongly domestically. And here, somebody wanting to make that case, probably a public affairs person, I'm going to take a, take a guess, overstepped the bounds unknowingly, not realizing where the legal line was, and now has been put back in their place. I just want to say one more thing on this subject. I think it's great that we are sharing intelligence, whether it's tactical targeting intelligence or defensive intelligence that has practical targeting implications. The Ukrainians have taken out something like 10 Russian generals that is fabulous, and any assistance that we are providing should, should be 
A, vetted extremely carefully legally, B, not publicly acknowledged, and C, pursued uh, with vim and vigor. Speaking of, of one presidential administration's, by some standards, questionable actions to another presidential administration's by perhaps some other standards, questionable actions. That's a stretch, Scott. Well, you know, what are you going to do with these things? <laughs> we, we really ram two together. Usually we have a nice transition topic between our international and our January 6th topic. But our next topic is one Mr. Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to former President Trump, where we've seen gotten a number of stories recently really laying out in more detail a narrative that we've only really gotten snippets of up until the last few weeks that some people have put together, but we're seeing folks in the January 6th committee from the media really begin to net, knit together a story of Mark Meadows playing a much more integral role in the weeks between the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection in leading efforts on behalf of former President Trump to potentially overturn the 2020 election results in one way or another and turn them in a direction in former President Trump's favor. We have stories of him engaging with Georgian state officials, trying to enter rooms where ballots are being counted. And this is all happening in a context in which Meadows has been held in contempt of Congress by Congress, who has made a referral uh, for his prosecution, criminal prosecution, to the Justice Department that so far has not been acted upon. Meadows himself, after initially providing some text messages that fill in a lot of the story, um, although not all of it, then declined to comply with subsequent subpoenas for phone records or is trying to obstruct, I should say, subsequent subpoenas for phone records, has refused to sit down with the January 6th committee uh, and therefore is actually leading a legal challenge among many other people against them, challenging their authority with which they have been convened, challenging a lot of their subpoenas, a lot of their specific actions, saying it it violates executive privilege, violates his First Amendment rights. And that he is, at the same time, also investigation under investigation in his home state of North Carolina for potentially uh, not actually having a residence in the area that he re- claimed he had for voting purposes and for other electoral purposes. In other words, Mark Meadows is increasingly emerging as a very, very central figure in the story of the January 6th leading up to the January 6th insurrection and in the set of investigations the January 6th committee and potentially the Justice Department are leading. Quinta, let me, let me turn to you first. What should we be making of Meadows' role in this, the fact that he's emerging to take this kind of center stage position? At least that seems to be the narrative that we're seeing in the last few weeks. And what should we, which I, by which I mean I think the committee or the Justice Department or others in the public sphere, be thinking about what we should do with him? You know, What are the appropriate reactions moving forward to, to how these different challenges Meadows poses should be dealt with? I don't think it's a surprise that Meadows is important to the January 6th investigation. I think it was that was always going to be clear. He he was the chief of staff. He was Trump's eyes and ears during this period. I also think I've I've talked about this a little bit before, but we learned from the Mueller investigation that Trump is not someone who leaves much of a paper trail. Indeed, he was angry at his lawyers for taking notes. He's he doesn't use email. It seems to have been very hard to get a hold of even phone records because he would call from a blocked number. Um, And so as a result, a lot of the material, and of course, the Mueller investigation didn't get to talk to him personally. So as a result, the, the picture that you get of Trump is sort of pieced together from what other people can tell and from their records. So I I don't think it's surprising that Meadows is 
playing kind of a, a similar role here, which is augmented by the fact that, as you pointed out, Scott, um, he cooperated with the committee before he decided that it was completely impossible for him to cooperate with the committee uh, and that it was, in fact, he was legally prohibited from cooperating with the committee. So they, they already have a pretty significant tranche of material from him, and we've already seen uh, a fair amount of those text messages reported out and published by CNN and other outlets. There's also some really interesting reporting in Politico about how the committee, how the January 6th committee has been able to piece together what Meadows was doing, kind of taking it one more ring out, um, which is, of course, how you conduct these investigations. They talked to, they've been talking to uh, his advisors, um, including a woman named Cassidy Hutchinson, who has been cooperating. And so according to Politico, that's allowed them to sort of get a picture of what Meadows was doing and through that, a picture of what Trump was doing. So, so far, all this, I think, probably sounds pretty familiar to anyone who, again, paid attention to the Mueller investigation. Um, of sort of how you how you build that picture. The question in my mind, the big question is what might happen with this lawsuit that you've referenced. So Meadows is suing the committee um, in an attempt to kind of get ahead of a possible contempt prosecution, which the DOJ uh, has, as we mentioned, kind of hasn't moved on. And we haven't heard anything from them. I believe if I'm correct, uh, Attorney General Garland was asked about it and sort of gave the exactly the non-answer that you would expect recently. Uh, there's an interesting piece that we ran in, in Lawfare in April by um, Albert L. Schuler, essentially arguing that the, the holdup probably has to do with these opinions from the Office of Legal Counsel taking a really aggressive view of testimonial immunity for presidential advisors, which sort of creates a bit of a problem for the current Justice Department since Meadows is explicitly relying on those opinions to begin with, even though they've never been endorsed by anyone outside the executive branch. So there's some kind of tricky executive branch politics here that I I think are interesting. Um, But another thing to keep in mind is, you know, the same problem that Again, we ran into during the congressional investigations post-dating Mueller, which is that this kind of litigation takes a really long time. Uh, So far, the committee has been able to kind of move ahead by not going through the civil litigation route, but Meadows has forced their hand a bit here. I know that uh, the judge in the case has said that he wants to start holding hearings in the first weeks of June. That's also when the committee has said it wants to start holding hearings. So the clock is kind of running down here. (laughs) And it does make me wonder whether the committee is just going to have to kind of work with what they have. And it does seem like they have a fair amount in sort of situating Meadows in January 6th. Yeah. So I I think uh, the clock is ticking not on the committee here, but on Meadows. And uh, let me give a few reasons to think that, you know, Meadows has fought, fought hard here, but his, his position is going to get difficult real fast. The first reason is the state of Georgia. Uh, They now have a special grand jury looking at the campaign of pressure to not certify the results of uh, the Georgia election, uh, the election in Georgia. And Meadows is clearly a part of that and maybe the central part of that, Uh, although the phone call between Trump and Raffensperger has kind of sucked the air out of the room. uh, That evidence you know, puts you to the extent that you have a privilege claim in crime fraud land, uh, at least potentially. And I think, you know, what we saw in California in the, in the litigation involving 
Professor Eastman, or Dean Eastman, maybe I should call him, um, is that things get pretty sticky once uh, once somebody argues to a federal judge, okay, you know, you might have a, a an executive privilege claim or an attorney-client privilege claim here under normal circumstances, but uh, you were actually planning felonious activity. I don't think when you start having – now, there's no – you know, the, the question of – of need under executive privilege is evaluated differently from an attorney-client privilege. That balancing test is different. But I think the moment you go into federal court and you say, enjoin the committee from demanding my cooperation, and the response is, you know, your cooperation, we require it because you guys were planning crimes. That's going to be a very hard line for for Meadows to, to hold. Secondly, look, I think prosecution of Meadows, uh, given these OLC opinions, is a much more difficult proposition on the contempt side than prosecution of Steve Bannon, which the Justice Department went ahead with. That said, is the Justice Department really going to take the view that you don't have to test, you don't have to show up to testify about the crimes you were planning with the president? I I don't you know whether they pr- prosecute him for contempt. There's I I just don't think they're gonna. That's a position they're gonna take. And then the third thing is the deadline for the committee isn't June. The deadline for the committee they will continue to gather evidence until they go out of existence if they do, uh, if and when the Republicans take Congress. So the immediate deadline may be when they hold their public hearings. But boy, if if it's August or September and Mark Meadows is, runs out of running room, they'll reconvene an extra hearing to have him there. So I think they have – I think it is not the committee that the clock is, is running down on. One interesting knit here is that the judge in uh, Meadows' case is Judge Carl Nichols, who is actually the only district court judge who has so far adopted an extremely narrow uh, reading of 18 U.S.C. 1512, obstructing an official proceeding in a January 6 criminal case, which is one of the statutes that uh, the judge in the California case found that Trump may have violated. Excellent point. But now let me ask you this question. Imagine a special grand jury in Georgia were to say the material that uh, Mark Meadows is refusing to testify about, refusing to even show up, is actually evidence of a criminal offense by him or by the president or both under Georgia state law. How is Judge Carl Nichols going to react to that? Yeah, that's that's fair. And he has said that he's, he's seriously considering a motion for reconsideration on that front. But I did want to point out that in it. Well, and I think this goes feeds into this kind of interesting question about Justice Department's stalling on this sort of prosecution. I think Ultraler has has a point here about the challenge of these Office of Legal Counsel opinions. And this feeds into what has become one of my pet complaints about the administration uh, that I've voiced on here before, which is that we haven't seen the Office of Legal Counsel revise any of these very problematic legal opinions that are still very public, that we saw a wave of which get released in the lame dunk period at the very end of the Trump administration to put down public markers on legal positions. Most of the ones at issue here had already been released at that point, but nonetheless are on the books and reflect a very, very, very aggressive view of executive privilege uh, and how it operates in contexts like these. The best I can make of the situation is that it appears that there is, at a minimum, 
a lot of internal wrangling happening around these opinions, uh, a lot of bureaucratic choke points. And that's that's the nature of any sort of big policy-setting change in legal position, uh, even across administrations. Wait, I have breaking news. Oh. Lawfare co-founder Bobby Chesney has been named the dean of the law school at the University of Texas. Oh, uh, congratulations, congratulations, Bobby. This has nothing to do with the matter that we are under discuss. D- but it is, it is a bit of but good Bob, news. Bobby is also being show. held in contempt of Congress. Yeah. <laughs> there is no chance that Bobby will be held in contempt of anything. He will. He is held in extremely high regard, the opposite of contempt. And... Uh, uh, Excited congratulations uh, to Bobby Chesney and my my dear friend and co-founder of this site. Bobby, very anybody who has not had the opportunity to meet Bobby, he is not only a phenomenal scholar, he's also just a phenomenally nice guy and a great professor uh, and a killer guitarist. Uh, and so it's great to see him rise uh, to these ranks. Congratulations, University of Texas. Sadly, this means the odds of us getting him as a guest on Rational Security are probably now never at an say all-time never. low. But never say never. We will see what we can do, Bobby. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So come back to the to the Meadows point. You know, the fact that we have seen the Justice Department not be able to get to the point of taking action on these OLC opinions, I think is indicative of the fact that there probably is a lot of bureaucratic wrangling. There are a lot of choke points when you try and repeal and amend these things. It can be very complicated. It requires a lot of political will to get over. And Garland, I think one of his virtues is he's not he's trying to stay out of career officials work, trying not to force any sort of decisions or escalate things. There's a certain point where that becomes impossible and you have to actually force things to bureaucracy. That's the nature of bureaucracy. But he's not quite there yet. I suspect they're waiting for this district court opinion to be a forcing mechanism. If, particularly because it is Judge Nichols who's got some credibility, perhaps with um, certain people on the right because of his more conservative approach to criminal prosecutions, if he comes out and says, no, Meadows, you're off on this particular interpretation, I think that makes it much more comfortable for DOJ to distinguish its OLC opinions or perhaps amend or narrow them and say, we found a way forward on this. Not because it necessarily that's something they couldn't do already in changing their view, but because it gives internally the lawyer saying, we, we should be sticking with this view. This is the right view. One less leg to hang on. Now, will the district court opinion be enough? Nichols could re- rule the other way, of course. And ideally, frankly, you'd probably wait for D.C. Circuit appeal uh, and review and then see if it goes on and back now and it's things like that. what, November? And now it's well past November. Like, that's the problem. They don't have that time frame here. And I don't think Garland is unaware or insensitive to that. I think the district court opinion strikes me as a very good compromise to point to say, look, we've tested this theory, we've put it before a judge, and it has either lost or not lost. Um, and in that sense, I think you know the civil 
action that Meadows has initiated is pretty important uh, and should be getting perhaps a little bit more attention, particularly those that care about criminal accountability for the people involved. Yeah, I mean, I think what this gets to is something really important, which is the incredibly difficult position that DOJ is in. And I am sympathetic to the difficulties here. But at a certain point, it does seem like something has to, like, they either have to act or not act. And I think it's important, not only in the the sense of this particular investigation, which obviously is of surpassing importance, and both Biden and Garland have explicitly recognized that. But I mean, the the existence of this sort of line of OLC memos that uh, Meadows is relying on here. It's not just the Trump administration, right? It's it's building on a, a line of reasoning that stretches back quite a ways that has expanded to this sort of, I would argue, quite absurd view of absolute testimonial immunity for presidential advisors. And that's not just going to be a problem for this investigation. It's a problem for every future potential congressional investigation. And as we've seen from the Trump administration, I would argue that we need a lot more power to hold the presidency accountable. And so I worry not only about the implications for the Meadows case, for the January 6th investigation more more broadly, but also just like looking forward, how are we situating this in the broader scope of what the Biden administration is doing and it's the little time that it has to secure reform of the presidency. Yeah, I would just say on the matter of the OLC opinions, I agree with you that the current posture of OLC on a lot of things is uh, related to this is is extravagant. And that reflects the accretion of precedent over a long period of time uh, across administrations following followed by a sort of hyper aggressive effort to encode those uh, on the part of the Trump administration. Uh, The question of how you un whether and how you unravel how much of that is a super hard one, and it is not best done in the context of bringing criminal complaints, criminal indictments for contempt, because the defendant, in this case Meadows, would have a legitimate claim that as an executive branch official at the time, he was bound by those OLC opinions, not merely uh, relying on them, and they're still on the books, right? So how can you hold somebody in contempt for as an executive branch official following not hold – how can the the Congress can hold him in contempt, of course, but how can he – How can the executive branch indict him, prosecute him for following the executive branch's own opinions that they have not withdrawn? Um, And so it puts the Justice Department in a very difficult position. I'm confident I agree with you that they need to unravel some of this. I'm not sure what the right way to do it is. Can I say I think one of the more interesting parts of of this investigation that I think has become really evident, I mean the January 6th investigation the last few weeks in Washington Post, I think it was the Post had an interesting piece on this, is the importance of junior people in this investigation. Because the reaction to the stonewalling by Meadows and a number of these other people by the January 6th committee does seem to have been, well, 
then we need to subpoena their assistance and their special assistance and the 23-year-old fresh off the campaign trail that they pulled in to help them organize paperwork. And it's really interesting. I mean, these people could make executive privilege arguments. Uh, they would be weaker arguments, but they could make them. Um, I'm not sure the logic of a lot of what, particularly when you see, you know, Bannon and other folks who were not in the White House making executive privilege arguments, certainly these people who were in the White House could. Um, and there are some cases where, frankly, the executive branch should say these people are protected by executive privilege. But there's both the fact that legally the case is probably a little weaker. The further you get from the president, from the sub- substantive decision-making of the president, your case kind of gets weaker and weaker, even if you're still in the White House. But then more fundamentally, the, I think the real difference maker for these people is that they are just neither bought in nor have the confidence that whatever the Trump administration machine is, whatever the network is that Meadows and other folks who are taking these big risks think they are still going to turn to for jobs and political support in the future. And that's a reason why they're willing to take these personal risks. Just isn't there for these young people, or they don't see themselves as being a part of it. There are some youngish people, like Dan Scavino, you know, pretty senior guy, but still pretty young, early-ish in his career. Uh, I think he's younger than I am. He's certainly emotionally younger. Uh, emotionally <laughs> younger than I am. He may not be. Actually, I think he's a little older than I am, but he's about my age. I like to think I'm a young man uh, early in my career. Uh, and so uh, they are, you know, they you they've got buy-in, but they've got a long road ahead of them. They've got to navigate through future multiple future administrations. Um, you know, they they've got a little bit of different calculus than Meadows, who's very bought in, and frankly is in the the prime of his career slash the late stages of the prime of his career, probably. And so it's, it's an interesting calculus here. And it kind of makes raises the question, I think, how much of this was a strategy from the outset? How much of these big fights and the fact that we knew these things were going to take months w- led the committee to start really focusing and do these big scoops of these more junior people to get these interviews? Because they've got a pretty solid story to tell now. They've done a good job. It's been pretty impressive. And Tim Heafy and whoever else has been heading up this effort, uh, Denver Riggleman and the whole rest of the crew, like they've got a lot more here despite the obstruction of these senior people. And that's pretty exceptional. I'm very interested to see what we hear come June, July, and August. Uh, and hopefully people will tune in, take a break from vacation and tune in to see. Well, speaking of enraging behavior by senior officials, uh, let's talk about enraged behavior and enraged response to other people's behavior by non-senior officials, which is to say day-to-day Americans who really seem, I think the technical term is fucking pissed off about everything. Um, There is a new article in The Atlantic uh, by a woman uh, whose name I have trouble with, uh, Quinta... I think I've heard of her. uh, uh, Juricic about how pissed off Americans are at each other, uh, and not just Americans. Uh, She writes, the rise in anger is not exclusively an American problem. Incidents of unruly passenger behavior also increased in Canada. This is in uh, on travel uh, means over the course of 2021. And a majority of respondents to one United Kingdom study reported having had arguments become angry or ended relationships with others because of the pandemic. Responding to surveys by Nature and the Australian Science Media Center, researchers also spoke publicly about COVID-19 in the UK, Germany, Australia, and elsewhere reported persistent harassment in response to their media appearances. It is safe to say, however, that uh, ground zero in the irrational anger 
uh, department seems to be in democratic dialogue, seems to be the United States where everybody's yelling at each other all the time. We all seem really pissed off. And how much this has to do with the pandemic, with Donald Trump, with right-wing media, or a subject Quinta doesn't cover in the article, with uh, woke mobs attacking people uh, online for minor deviations from orthodoxy. It does seem like something has changed in American politics. And uh, Quinta writes about uh, the degree to which this is affecting law enforcement priorities, both the National Security Division uh, under Matt Olson, uh, the Assistant Attorney General, and the Attorney General himself have uh, spoken publicly about the need to address threats to and attacks on uh, officials, flight attendants, and other uh, you know, school board members. As somebody who has been the subject of a fair bit of angry attacks and rhetoric, despite being a middle-aged white male of precisely the sort who is uh, thought to be immune from such things. And it's usually doing it. And, and, and is also, uh, I find this subject fascinating and I'm intrigued by the question that underlies Quinta's article, which is what has really changed here and uh, where is this going? Before we get to Quinta's thoughts on the subject, Scott, what was your reaction to the article? I thought it was a great article, of course. Uh, oh, thank I'll you. Put that thank out, you. Of course. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really useful kind of survey of what is definitely a real trend I think we're all experiencing, and particularly those, frankly, that are in the service professions or that are in public office where they are at the cruxes of these hot pres- high-pressure, hot issues are really feeling it. And I got to say, the thing that it made me think of, actually, was a phenomenon that I thought a lot about back when I was an undergraduate, um, which was kind of the heyday of the internet, uh, if you will, when it was first getting big with social media. Um, before it got bad. Before it got bad. I think 80s. No, this was back in, in the mid-2000s. <laughs> um, I read a series of articles. I actually almost wrote my undergraduate like honors thesis on this, and I kind of regret not doing it, about how we were, the, there were all these documented cases of where you saw communities of people who connected on the internet confirming a worldview that shaped that was a minority worldview, but should dramatically change their view of reality and what was appropriate in society. And the two case studies that I can recall now is one was a group of people who I think most people would say were schizophrenic. They had paranoid schizophrenic. They had views that they were being surveilled by police, followed by their neighbors, you know, had aliens following them. And that while their views were often very isolating, they had actually found a degree of solace and actually in some cases found were, were improved in terms of their ability to function day-to-day life by the fact that on the internet they had met, met other people who believed the same things as them. And it both reinforced that belief for them but allowed them to kind of function on a different level. The other one was, in fact, this phenomenon in Europe that we had in the 2000s, which was the rise of these pedophile parties, political parties, where you saw people who even gained a few seats, I think, in the Dutch parliament, maybe the Belgian parliament, like one or two, not, not a substantial chunk. For political parties based around this idea that, in fact, you know, pedophilia was uh, reflected like inappropriate social norms and, in fact, was a natural impulse a lot of people had uh, and that it should be something that's allowed in society that brings different benefits. Again, an extremely marginal you know, view that most people wildly disagree with, but that these people have been convinced they were representing the silent majority. The reason I think about this is because a common theme in a lot of these cases of what people are 
lashing out of this anger is that, is that they speak in terms of we, or they speak in terms of we the people, is this idea that they are representing a community of people who are aggrieved in one particular way. And I I have to say, while I hate to be like, you know, the 30-something dude blaming things on the internet, I kind of blame things on the internet a little bit in this in terms of it is, and perhaps especially in the pandemic time when our ability to engage in person directly with our neighbors has become more constrained, our view of reality uh, and what the social values our neighbors share and what they will approve and won't approve strikes me as increasingly formed by these communities that are a little bit self-selecting and reinforce certain values. And so if you are somebody who's angry at mask mandates, you may have this idea that when you angrily lash out at a grocery store, you're channeling something that people around you believe in as well and will respond positively or at least not extremely negatively to you when you do that. I think actually if you look at these videos, that's the emotion I think I see on most of these people's faces is kind of shock that ever, nobody around them seems to be coming to their defense or supporting them as they say these things. Um, it's this inability to divorce their reality from the actual reality and marry them. And, you know, it's it's just a kind of sad phenomenon. And I, while I love to tie it to the, our political moment, I'd love to tie it to, uh, you know, the pandemic and the unique pressures there, and I think both contribute to it. I can't help but wonder if maybe it is part of a product of having a self-selected social community that forms a lot of our interactions, and that is something that is facilitated by modern technology. It's how a lot of us, uh, and some people more than others, really build our community, and that community is what informs our sense of self and what is appropriate as a society. And I'm not sure it's as easy as, as blaming it on, on one particular moment or one particular political trend. Uh, I think there's maybe more symptoms than causes to some extent, or at least there's a little bit of a feedback loop. Yeah, so I want to start off by describing what I'm not talking about, because I do think I, I wrote this piece over the last few months. And in recent days, there have been a lot of conversations about, you know, what is appropriate protest and civility, especially around protests in front of the houses of Supreme Court judges. So what I'm talking about here, I would distinguish from peaceful protest or you know, chalking a message in front of a politician's house, uh, which is apparently something that someone did outside Susan Collins's uh, house in Bangor, Maine. I think that, you know, peaceful protest is an important part of this country. And what I'm interested in here is, as we've been talking about, you know, harassment, rage, threats of violence, and the extent to which those have, I think, become increasingly mainstream to the point where, Ben, as you pointed out, it is changing law enforcement priorities. Um, and people are asking law enforcement to look into it more aggressively. What really struck me about all of these different cases, and, and I think there, you know, there's a spectrum from the people yelling at a barista because they don't want to put on a mask to the sort of vicious, really sustained harassment that, for example, election workers um, in local facilities across the countries have faced from people who think that they stole the 2020 election. But the the sort of sustained harassment really struck me because it reminded me of something that I researched when I just started working with Ben um, when we were writing about the kind of harassment that women got online, particularly sexualized harassment and violence. And one of the arguments that we were both making then is that this kind of vicious behavior is something that was experienced very particularly by women. And, you know, it's something that is experienced by people who are vulnerable in some way online. And the the interesting thing, I think, about what I would describe as a kind of wave of threats and harassment and violence in politics is not just that it is targeting people who are 
vulnerable, you know, like a, a barista, a service worker, somebody who's not in a particularly stable job, but that it has also expanded to target people who would previously maybe have been safe. Um, so Ben, you, you noted your own social position. Um, but but in seriousness, I mean, when we talk about threats to election workers, a lot of them are threats to election workers, especially in the South um, and in the Midwest who are Black. A lot of them are also to, you know, white Republican men. Um, who would previously not have been, you know, the the picture you would imagine of someone getting an enormous amount of internet harassment. And so what strikes me about this, what I think is a trend, is an expansion in who engages in this kind of harassment and how uh, politically appropriate it is, um, but also in who is targeted and that that's sort of expanded outward. Yeah. So I, I, I just want to say, I don't think Quinta is saying in this piece, and I certainly wasn't saying, although I'm sure somebody will interpret it that way, that we should regard this as a problem now that it has reached uh, stable, uh, reasonably financially secure white men. Um, that, you know, it was, it was fine as long as it was just women and minorities. We've crossed but, the line now. Um, but now it's really gone too far. I do think the thing that is fundamentally different now is the degree to which the performative temper tantrum of the type that we all used to think that is an asshole over there uh, is now a matter of deep pride for the individuals involved. And they are hugely indignant uh, that anybody would regard that activity as criminal or as threatening. Uh, And I think there's a COVID element of that, and the article goes into the masking wars in a way that I think is useful in that regard. I also think there is uh, an element, and this is the part where I I do think the left has something to answer for, uh, that before there was a a kind of Trumpist escalation of this uh, into the performative temper tantrum department being, you know, something that you tweet about yourself, right? You share your own uh, sort of vice signaling. Uh, there was a, you know, a, a a sort of call-out culture on the left that could get pretty near violent, or at least the rhetoric of which could be very ugly, uh, and scary for the people who were subject to it. And so I I do think we've reached the point where everybody regards their own temper tantrums as virtues. That's a scary thing, particularly when combined with the current right-wing propensity to apologize for and support violent activity. I don't know what you do about it, and the article doesn't really have a lot to say about what you do about it. I will say one thing about what you do about it, which is you prosecute some people in high-profile ways. And I, I actually think the attorney general uh, did a very good thing in his speech on January 5th by kind of conceptually linking this material to January 6th to efforts to overthrow the constitutional order on that day and to civil rights violations, that there's a thematic link here between people who don't want their opponents to vote and who want to use democratic processes to reduce democratic access 
people who want to threaten the barista who, you know, may have the wrong shirt on or may not have the right kind of cheese available, uh, to use one of the more absurd examples in Quintus' piece, and people who actually don't believe in respecting the democratic order at all. I, I think Garland's speech was extremely thoughtful in conceptually linking those three things. And this piece is a kind of meditation on that on that less discussed part of Garland's speech, which is the part that has to do with the proud expression of threats and anger. And prosecuting people for doing that is a way of saying that this is not actually a legitimate part of our society. I agree with that, but I almost po- think it poses a more fundamental challenge, right? Because if you wait for prosecution, if you you make that a focus, although I don't think you're saying that should be not a the focus, focus, but, but a focus. focus. I, I I don't disagree with that, but you know the tools of coercion, this idea that law is inherently backed up by violence, right? Uh, you know it, it feeds into some of these narratives. You almost need to have also. You know, this this kind of harkens back to the classic challenge of, like, civic virtue. Like, how do you approach a system of civic virtue in, like, a pluralistic republic where people have very different views? You know, maybe think of another – just kind of throwing a lot of old law review articles out these days. But there's an article, Law's Republic, by Frank Michaelman in, like, the 80s um, that tried to wrestle with this and say, like, how when you have a pluralistic society, can you have a system of uh, civic virtue? How important is it? And he kind of came up to the view that it's important about to live in a kind of dialogic sort of relationship, uh, as I recall. I don't remember the exact details because it's been 10 years or so since I read this article. But uh, I remember being thinking, finding it very thoughtful at the time, and it's kind of the same issue here. We need to have some sort of fundamental consensus to say, here are actual limits. And I will say, I think a big part of that comes to the speeches. It's not just you know the prosecution and saying, here are the legal lines. It's also about saying, here's the proper way to approach these sorts of disagreement. Uh, and so it really is actually meaningful when you see uh, public officials make these sorts of remarks in public speeches like Carlin, I think, agree, I agree, has been very good about. Um, I think Joe Biden has been not bad about. I thought uh, Barack Obama was very conscious about actually throughout his presidency, although, you know, that obviously did not uh, have a, this, all of these problems have come about in spite of that. And, it, you know, I hope it's something that we see as a theme as more public fears come forward, and particularly, frankly, among Republicans who object to the Trumpification of their party. I think this is why Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and these other people are important, because they can come step forward and say, not just democratic norms, to some extent, just social norms, and say, this is their alliance that's inappropriate if we disagree. You know, it's sad we're seeing so many of these people retire and not willing to take up the important role of actually articulating those views, because you need to have somebody on the stage next to Donald Trump in a debate or in a speech saying... What you are saying is inappropriate for doing this, or at least it needs to be articulated within these limits, because these limits can't be crossed. And that's really what, at least in the political realm, we seem to be missing on on one side, and that makes it hard to to maintain. Right. I think that part of what I'm trying to identify here, and I'm specifically focusing on, on the right in this argument, is that this kind of embrace of harassment makes that kind of self-moderation impossible, because you know, we've there has been reporting about how, for example, a lot of Republicans in the House decided not to vote to impeach Trump the second time around because they faced threats and harassment, um, that those kind of threats have driven them out of public life. And again and again, you know, if you look at these stories of public health officials, election board officials, school board officials stepping down from their positions because they don't want to be harassed anymore. And so at the same time as I think I would say, you know, the answer is a Democratic 
like resurgence, more people getting involved in their communities, right? Like more embrace of civic virtue as a concept. It also makes it incredibly unappealing to be involved in that way. And in that way, I think it's sort of a, a, a downward spiral in a way that's concerning. Well, we are unfortunately going to have to leave the conversation there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not bring you some object lessons to think about until you hear from us next week. Quinta, why don't you go ahead and get us started? So I'm going to continue with my two-episode theme of long, deeply reported articles about uh, the experience of pregnancy (laughs) and reproductive health. This was not intentional. Um, Last week, I recommended a story in The Atlantic about sort of groups working for reproductive health preparing for the end of Roe v. Wade. This week, I would like to recommend a really astonishing piece in every sense of the word in the New York Times uh, magazine by Susan Dominus um, called The Nightmare of Being a Surrogate Mother in the Ukraine War. So uh, a lot of people in the United States uh, find surrogates in Ukraine because the laws in that country allow it and make international adoption easy in ways that it's not otherwise. And so obviously, the war created unbelievable problems here. The piece is just a really thoughtful reflection on the complications of surrogacy, also on surrogacy as work, as labor in every sense of the term, and and what that means and the sort of very complicated dynamics between, you know, Americans who are primarily concerned reasonably enough about their baby and the Ukrainian women who are struggling to figure out whether to leave the country, whether to stay, how to make money. Um, It's really astonishing. It's a brutal depiction of the conflict, but also of a, a particular corner of how the conflict has really upended people's lives. So I'd definitely recommend giving it a read. I will second that. It's a phenomenal article. I read that. I, I will also say the global surrogacy industry is fascinating and raises so many fraught moral questions. There is an amazing podcast series that was put together between, I believe it was NPR and an Israeli podcast affiliate of NPR. I cannot remember what it's called. I'll put a link in the show notes that went through Israel actually expressing, uh, adopting unborn Israeli surrogate children as their nationals during, I believe, an earthquake in Nepal and sending in special forces soldiers to evacuate them. It's fascinating. And I'm curious to what diplomatic efforts are happening in Ukraine now after I read this article uh, that touches on it a bit. But I suspect there's a lot more complicated politics happening in the background, given the intersection of major national interests around this issue in Ukraine. Well, for my object lesson, uh, having now gotten to throw my endorsement for an old Law Review article in earlier, uh, I am instead going to turn to my eyes to the stars. Uh, Because as some of my colleagues know, uh, I am a man with lots of interests and lots of hobbies. And one of those hobbies and interests is outer space. And every once in a while, something just gets... Space. Space law, specifically. (laughs) Space law and accoutrement to go around it. And every once in a while, something like gets under my skin. I get really in outer space and reading a lot about it again. And all this talk of Elon Musk, for whatever reason, if people just mention SpaceX exists, and I begin thinking about it. I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks when I'm like in bed trying to read before I go to sleep, scrolling through a bunch of stuff about space and space colonization and space travel. And NASA has this amazing site that I had somehow never seen before that pulls together a map of the solar system and gives you a kind of like a 3D tour of every astronomical body and satellite, like also sending satellite emission we have out in our solar system all the way out to the Kuiper Belt and the Earth Cloud and like all the way out. And then I think it even goes 
beyond our galaxy, but you know, that's that's I don't think we have a lot more detail there. It is just a phenomenal read about all these different planets, the things we know about them, amazing images and videos. Um, and I also say I will I will also give an endorsement uh, by believe it's Patrick Byrne, who is a uh, astronomy professor um, who posts these amazing images of satellite from satellites and of outer space um, and from the surface of the moon and from Mars that are just phenomenal. Uh, and so I encourage people to dig into this. I think it's such a fun area to read and think about um, the possibility what we're inching closer to every day about outer space and traveling and living there. Um, and uh, it's a great it's a great little uh, vacation read if you have a little free time and uh, you need to unwind and think about something other than your day-to-day life. Uh, I highly recommend it. So I'll put the links for those in the show notes. Ben, why don't you bring us home? Well, I'm going to use my object lesson to announce a new podcast that doesn't yet exist. Um, because I'm sitting in a room uh, with Ian Enright uh, of Goat Rodeo. And uh, this morning I did, for the first time, I ran a Twitter Spaces because a whole lot of people had questions about uh, our little operation against the Russian ambassadors' residents, speaking of harassing people at their houses. Uh, we did a uh, what we call an illumination with a projector and a spotlight uh, of the Russian ambassadors' residents. A lot of people had questions, and so... I did a live Twitter spaces, which I'd never uh, done before, in which you can take questions from people on audio live on, on Twitter and get different people to speak. And in the middle of doing it, I suddenly had an idea for a live podcast that I'm going to experiment with, which is Voices from Ukraine, me uh, talking to them with a live audience over my morning coffee, and then sending the audio to one Ian Enright uh, and the Goat Rodeo team. And so it will have an element of a radio call-in show designed to allow uh, Ukrainian intellectuals and uh, journalists and refugees, regular people, and maybe even some people who are actively engaged in the fight uh, to have conversations with international audiences, uh, both in a live setting and in subsequently uh, delivered by podcast medium. I was very impressed with Twitter Spaces as a technological platform and just as an ability to uh, have a, an, an audio conversation, basically your own radio call-in show with anybody who wants to join, have a certain amount of granular control over it. And so going to be experimenting with this. Stay tuned. Yes, lots of Ben's podcast experiments yield uh, long-standing and welcome fruit, including rational security. So who knows where this may lead? From one podcast experiment to another. <laughs> exactly. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors. And for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our Daily Lawfare podcast and our forthcoming special series on the programmatic failures that led us to leave so many of our partners behind in Afghanistan allies. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. 
behalf of my co-host Quinta Jurassic and our special guest Benjamin Wittes. I am Scott R. Anderson. Co-host emeritus to you. I'm Scott. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> co-host emeritus Benjamin Wittes. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.